Good morning, everyone. I have started each sermon since I've been preaching on an interim basis, kind of talking about and introducing something cool that's happening here at Oldham Lane, one of our ministries or one of the wonderful things that's happening. And I couldn't uh, miss the chance to brag a little bit on our young people. Um, I guess that's, I guess just once you've worked with young people, it's just always kind of there. And so I've had to fight the urge to talk about them every week. I've tried to share the love a little bit, but I want to circle back around and, and make a note of this. If, if you came to the building early this evening, say maybe four o'clock, you would find that the parking lot has quite a few more cars in it than you would expect. And you might ask yourself why. And if you walked into the halls, you would see that scattered about in various classrooms are a bunch of our young people participating in leadership training for Christ. We call it LTC. And I think that it is one of the most wonderful programs that we do because it's all about taking our young people and teaching them to use the talents and skills that they have to, to lead and to serve in a way that glorifies God. I'm so thankful for that. You know, David Allen Sprott and his wife Jenna and Colden and his wife Danley, uh, the riches are, are the volunteers and the deacons who have overseeing that ministry and they put countless hours in being sure that it happens. And then they have a whole team of volunteers that works with them. And, and it's so encouraging to think about the next generation of faithful Christians being raised up, isn't it? So sometime show up early at the building and you can listen outside the classrooms at the wonderful things the kids are learning about. Here we are in our fourth week talking about the greatest story ever told. Y'all may get tired of me just zeroing in on things and talking about them for forever. But I love this story. We're in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, if you want to start by opening your Bibles there. And as we begin to kind of unpack this next section of the story, I want to ask you a question. What's in a name? What's in a name? Why did you receive the name that you have? You know, a lot of us have a lot of different stories for why we're named the way that we are named. We named all of our kids B-names because that seemed like maybe it was a good idea at the time. It was really cute. And now that our kids have gotten old enough to need quite frequent yelling across the house, it's quite difficult to keep track of whose name you're calling. So I'm Blake. We have Brianna, Braxton, Brooklyn, and Blair. So you try to get that out uh, when you're upset. Um, many of you chose names for a lot of different reasons when you were naming your children, mostly because they sounded right. They sounded pleasant to you. A lot of you rejected names for similar reasons, mostly because they sounded unpleasant, or maybe they reminded you of someone who was unpleasant. You know, I wonder how our public school teachers could ever pick a name for a child. My favorite name, the name that I really wanted to name Braxton was Bullet. And everyone thought I was joking, but I was very serious. But Brianna colluded with my dad and convinced him to name his dog that. And so the name was forever taken off the table at the Dozier house. I can, I can never name a child Bullet. And I would have done it too. Y'all know me. Some of you chose names for familial reasons. I'm actually named after my father. Many of you may not know that, but he is Ken Dozier, and I go by my middle name. So you call me Blake, but I'm actually Kenneth Blake Dozier, named after my dad. Our children have middle names that correspond with names of grandparents. So there's actually something special about each of their names. Names are important. There's nothing sweeter to hear the sound of your own name. You know, I don't feel like my name has defined me. 
but it certainly put a stamp on who I am. There's some that would argue with that statement, claiming um, that my name defined me more than I would want to admit. I actually found this article from the New Yorker, and it was entitled, Why Your Name Matters. And they talked about several different studies that were done about names, but the first and probably most prominent was a study done in 1948 by two Harvard professors. They looked at 3,300 different students, and they actually found that those that had more normal-sounding names passed at a higher rate than those who had odd-sounding names. Thought that that was really interesting. Here's an excerpt from the article as they kind of explored this idea. They said, some recent research suggests that names can influence choice of profession, where we live, whom we marry, the grades we earn, the stocks we invest in, whether we're accepted to a school or hired for a particular job, the quality of our work in a group setting. Our names can even determine whether we give money to disaster victims. If we share an initial with the name of a hurricane, according to one study, we are far more likely to donate to relief funds after it hits. Pretty interesting. There's other research out there that shows that name signaling is a thing, meaning our names often give signals about our ethnicity or our religion or our socioeconomic status or all of those things. Our names do send signals, and like it or not, they imply something about us. For an Israelite, names were even more significant than they are for us. It's probably because they embrace the reality that we try to ignore. We see in a few circumstances, God steps in and he changes the name of people. So Abram became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah, Jacob became Israel. One of the first things that Gabriel told Zechariah when he delivered the news that Elizabeth was going to have a son was that his name would be John. This name was different. It was given by God but it wasn't what the family expected. And it actually led to a little family dispute. Similar to last week, the text that we're going to look at comes with two distinct sections. The first half of our text is a narrative, and it tells the story of these events that happened with this family, and, and it will tell a little bit about the family dispute that ensues. And then the second half of our text is a prophecy. Hey, this is a prophecy from the Holy Spirit through the mouth of Zechariah the father, and I think it's most likely that these words are what he speaks of in verse 64. It's the words that he responds to the family with in the middle of this dispute. So I want to begin by reading that first section, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. The text says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was 
with him. The odd choice of name didn't seem to cause any issue until today, which makes one wonder this. Why did Luke think it was important to include for us a family argument over the name of a child? You know, of all the things that Luke could have told us, uh, it's markedly barren when it comes to information about the childhood of John the Baptist or Jesus. Yet, for some reason, this story was included in the gospel. Imagine with me just for a second what this day would have been like. You know, it had finally officially happened. And this wasn't just any birth. Remember, this was an older couple who was barren. They were viewed with reproach as if God had left some sort of reproach on them by many in the community. And so this was a miraculous big thing that was happening here. Okay? And so while the family would have been expected to come into town and, and support a birth, especially a first birth, this one would have been something special. I mean, you're talking the relatives from the far ends of the family would have come into town for this one. Uncle Eddie would have rolled into town with a big RV for this event, and he would have posted up for the whole week. And you can imagine the dynamics that would have been happening with the family. Together, they would have celebrated. You know, there are a few things more amazing and, and joyous and special than the birth of a precious baby. And if you've ever seen the face of a mother who, who's having a baby after giving up hope, that it was ever going to happen, you know that there is a different type of joy in that situation. So imagine what the room would have been like. It's filled with a buzz. All of the families in town, it's exciting. There's wonder and joy and oohs and ogs and baby talk. And then the day came for the young boy to be circumcised. This was a really big deal for an Israelite family. This was a powerful witness, a powerful testimony to the covenant relationship that that Israel had with God. So there would have been an increased excitement on the day. This was a tradition that spanned back generations, thousands of years. It drew them back to their roots, to the very essence of who they were. And it was also the time when the child's name was going to be officially revealed and marked in the books. But they all really knew what his name was going to be. Zechariah. Probably when he was a little boy, they would call him Zacharias, little Zachariah. And so the time comes, normally the father would have led the ceremony, but apparently Zechariah was not only unable to speak, he was unable to hear, because later in the text we see that they had to make signs to him to ask him a question. I think it's likely that was because of his old age, because we know that they were older. So there's Zechariah, unable to speak, unable to hear, and kind of reserved to the edge of the ceremony, unable to participate like he normally would. So with him being out of commission, Elizabeth steps in and she breaks every social norm when she says, his name's going to be John. You can almost hear the confusion in the room. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like for have all of your family together and then a tradition like that to be broken? Can you imagine the exasperated sighs that might come from the corner of the room? Like, here we go again, Elizabeth and Zachariah making a mess of things. Uh, I mean, can you imagine the opinions that would come out? It was probably Uncle Eddie who spoke up in verse 61 and said, Hey, but there's no, no, none of your relatives are named this. What are you thinking? Hey, there's always that one family member that's kind of willing to, to, to put it out there and, and break the ice with something awkward. Nothing brings out opinions like a family gathering. Am I right? 
note what happens. All of a sudden, Zachariah is summoned because he's needed. And he's pulled from the edge into the center of this dispute, and they turn to him for clarity. They're expecting him to smooth things over and prevent Elizabeth from making this obviously irrational decision. Surely, Zachariah understands how odd this is. I mean, this is something that's going to cause confusion for John his entire life. This is something that you don't want to miss an opportunity on. This was a miracle baby. The miracle baby that was going to be able to keep the family name going. And he was going to miss an opportunity for his name to move on into the future if he names him something different. Surely Zachariah was going to step in and fix this situation. And Zechariah writes, with even more powerful language than Elizabeth used, his name is John. Not his name will be John. Not we're going to name him John. His name is John. God had named him. And Zechariah, in this moment, used the limited tools at his disposal to declare the will of God in the way that only he could. We see Zechariah's faithfulness, and in response, we see God show up with the same power and might that he used to shut his mouth, but this time he uncorks it and he lets him talk, and we see that the people are struck with wonder yet again. God is undeniably working in this moment. So why did Luke include this family dispute in Scripture? Some of you may have seen The Wizard of Oz. I know it's a really old movie. Maybe I'm dating myself a little bit. I watched this a lot as a child. There's an interesting and funny scene towards the end when Dorothy and the whole gang make it to where they're headed and they stand in front of the wizard and there's flames and there's this holographic face and this booming voice coming from, coming from above and he says that he's the wizard and he tells them that he's not going to see them that day, that they need to come back a different day and they're really discouraged. And they're upset because they've made this whole trip there and the wizard isn't even going to talk to them. They're about to leave when Dorothy's little dog, Toto, runs over to the corner where there's a curtain. And the dog grabs the edge of the curtain and he pulls that curtain back. And what do they find? Well, this small man behind the curtain pulling levers and talking into a microphone. It turns out when the curtain is pulled back, the great and powerful wizard wasn't so great and powerful after all. It was just a man with a fancy machine trying to be something he could never be. All throughout the story of Scripture, I catch myself at times wondering, is this what is really happening? I mean, can this really be believed? What are we going to see when we pull back the curtain? I think God understood the importance of pulling back the curtain. And it was his plan all along to reveal to us realities about who he was and what he's doing and why. And unlike the Wizard of Oz, he wasn't hiding behind the curtain because he was less than he appeared. The curtain was pulled back because he, or the curtain was pulled too because he was so much more than humanity could handle in the moment. So he inches the curtain back just a smidgen at a time careful not to let too much of his glory shine at once. Has anyone ever been woken up in the morning, maybe by their spouse, with the light being turned on all of a sudden? You know what kind of a shock that is? It makes you maybe not act very nice when you should. It's so much more bearable when you can maybe turn a lamp on first, and then you kind of 
Well, if y'all are like me, you turn the bathroom light on from around the corner, so you, and then you walk into it slowly, and your eyes adjust, and then the vanity lights come on, and you realize how much work you have to do before you leave the house. <clears throat> um, it, isn't it so much more pleasant to be eased in to that moment? This is what God is doing here. He's slowly revealing himself at a pace that people can handle. He carefully puts on display just enough to move his plan along and to keep the people encouraged and to give them confidence that this wasn't a trick and that their eyes were not fooling them, but God himself really was working. They needed this glimpse and this confirmation, this snapshot from behind the scenes, and I think we need it too. The public wonder began 30 years before the ministry of Christ when Zechariah came out from burning incense and he was mute. And then the public wonder escalated even more in this situation when he receives his voice back. God had visited, and their family dispute made the visit all the more memorable. It's because of what we see happening here that we cannot deny that the words Zechariah is about to speak are from God and are true. They could not deny them, neither could Luke, Theophilus, or you. You know, we've never been called to blind faith. That's an oxymoron, and they weren't either. They listened to John later in life because of what they remembered from his birth. They listened to Zechariah and what he was about to say because of what they had just witnessed. This evidence was documented for Theophilus to hear so that he could have faith, and it was documented for you so that you would have faith. The greatest story ever told is unfolding before their eyes. And it's been so beautiful and so odd. We've seen an old barren couple and a young maiden and a leaping fetus and the Holy Spirit-fueled prophecies and a song of praise and truth. Now a family dispute that leads to more prophecies. Let's read next what the Spirit tells us through Zechariah. The credibility of the witnesses has been established, and now it's time to see what he has to share. Verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. And prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What we're given here is two very long, interconnected, but independent sentences. The first one talks about God and what he's actively doing right then and there. And the second one turns its attention to John and talks about what his life is going to be about. And while there is so much that we could unpack from this section of verses, I want to zero in on what we see at the beginning 
and how that theme is again repeated at the end. We call this a fancy word as an inclusio. It basically means there's two really big ideas that kind of serve as bookends that hold up the, the information that's in the middle. They're like brackets or parentheses that include something. It's like the Holy Spirit made us a sandwich, okay? and there was a piece of bread on top and a piece of bread on bottom. And we're going to look at what that bread is and what we can learn from it. There's a big idea here. The idea of receiving a visit is what I'm talking about. He starts at the beginning of the passage by claiming God has visited his people. And he ends the passage with the imagery of the sunrise visiting. God was showing up in a tangible way. You know, it had been a long time since this had happened. I think Israel probably felt a little bit abandoned. They knew God was present, but he hadn't showed himself in a long time. Well, it was happening again, but this time it was different. God is about to make a 33-year-long visit in the flesh. And in fact, it's already begun. God is growing in the flesh, in Mary's womb. And as these words are spoken, he is three months along. We love to compare babies to the size of fruit for some reason. The mommy blog said that he was a size of a plum or a lemon at three months. So there you have it. Not only was the nature of his visit different, the reason for it was different. Why did God visit his people? You know, if you just glanced back over that first sentence, the text tells us that he visited to raise up a horn of salvation as promised for the purpose of saving them from their enemies, to show the promised mercy to them so they could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Just a few weeks ago, I think it was Crew Harless, well, I know it was, he confirmed in early service, Crew Harless prayed for Macho, the rhinoceros at the zoo who recently died. Okay? Some of you kids especially may have had a fond place in your heart for Macho. He was a pretty awesome animal. But what made Macho, Macho? Well, he was huge. Okay? He was ginormous. In fact, every time I walked by Macho's pen, I looked at the welds on the pipe and wondered if those would hold if Macho decided to run. That's a weird thing to think. On his nose... On the tip of Macho's nose was a horn. And we all know that he had the ability, were he so inclined, to direct the incredible power behind thousands of pounds of muscle into that singular point. That's what it's there for. A mighty conduit through which to direct his power if he needs it. Think of the antlers on a deer. They are a nice ornament for your den, but they're a terrifying thing if that animal is directing his energy towards you in a fight. Or we love to look at the longhorns as we drive down the road and say, oh, they're beautiful unless 2,000 pounds of animal decided to put his energy into that horn and come after you. Okay? The horn or the horns on an animal represent the focal point of its power. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us, Zechariah tells us. He has put in place a singular point through which all of his power is going to be directed. A weapon that's going to crush the enemies that threaten the power behind the horn. The focal point of the power of God. The horn of salvation. The point towards which everything was being directed had arrived. And the purpose was their salvation, that they could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. 
Now, it would be easy at first glance to read this first sentence and think the power behind the horn was directed at political entities. In other words, the Roman government that ruled over the people of God, the oppressors that would keep God's people from thriving. But we find as this poem carries on that salvation is not first from people or nations or powers, but from sin and death and distress. Because here when the second sentence enters the picture, we learn that this newborn baby John was destined to do something special. If you glance back over the last half, the last sentence, you'll see the text tells us that he's going to be a prophet. That he's going to go before the Lord in preparation. He's going to give knowledge of salvation in forgiveness of sins, the text tells us. Why is he going to do this? Because of God's tender mercy. And then he paints this beautiful picture of what God's tender mercy looks like. And it looks like a sunrise. He says, the sunrise shall visit from on high. Think of the way the sun rises over the horizon as it sends its rays across all of the earth. How the darkness starts to melt away and dissipate. He's going to give light to those who sit in darkness. In the shadow of death, the text says. When we hear the shadow of death, probably most of you think of the 23rd Psalm. David wrote about it a, a long time ago. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Okay. David was excited that God was with him to comfort him in the shadow. But this time, with this visit, the shadow disappears. And that's the difference. The shadow is everywhere that the light doesn't shine, but where it does shine, there is no shadow. And not only does it melt away the darkness of death, it exposes the right way to walk. The text says it exposes the pathway of peace. So he starts with telling us that God has visited and raised up a horn of salvation. And he ends with telling us that God has visited and shed light so that we could see past death and walk in peace. These are not two separate events. The power of God has coalesced in life-giving, peace-giving light. The horn of salvation and the light that destroys the shadow of death and illuminates peace are different ways of describing the same thing. And the baby boy who was just born, John, was born for the purpose of pointing creation to this truth. God has certainly began to pull back the curtain. He's claimed John for his own with his name. When challenged by his family, he worked a miracle and spoke to the glorious reality of what he was doing. He was visiting. He was visiting in a way that put all of his power into a singular point. He was visiting in a way that would rescue his people from the darkness of death and show them the pathway of peace. The greatest story ever told centers on this fact. God visited his people. And the hope we share is the same hope that was shared with them. The full power of the creator of the universe has been put to work for you. Don't you think for a moment that there is anything too big or powerful for him to handle? There is no government, no person, no power or principality, and no sin too big for his power. The fullness of his power was directed through Christ to destroy the enemy and save his people. 
And don't you think for a moment that the turmoil and uncertainty and darkness of death that we see around us is how it has to be for God's people. Death is melted away by the light of Christ. And this means the turmoil is replaced by the pathway to peace, by life. John was sent to prepare the people to receive this reality. And this message of hope that John was sent to share is the same message of hope that we need today. God has not abandoned us. He has visited and illuminated a path. And the pathway is in Christ alone. God didn't spread his power out in multiple forms. He put it all into that powerful horn that would defeat the enemy of death, and that horn is Jesus Christ. His people, those for whom the power is reserved, are those who believe this, who open their eyes to the light and choose to walk in the path. May we be forever grateful to serve a God who has visited, a God who claimed John for his own and tasked him with revealing this reality to us. If you are living in the shadow of death without hope or peace, there's a better way. And the greatest story ever told tells you about it. The story of God visiting and redeeming his people. You know, in the Old Testament, his people were the Israelites. And their covenant was marked by circumcision. Today, his people are the believers. And our covenant is marked with baptism. God's tender mercy is available in Christ alone. And we would love to teach you how to take hold of it by becoming one of his own. If you are have studied and are ready to be baptized, the waters are ready. If you have wandered and are ready to repent, the invitation is open to you. We invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.